shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? She just goes a little mad sometimes. You want to know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. If you hang up on me, you'll die just like your mother. Do you want to die, Sydney? Hi. I'm the Snake Bite Horrorcast. I'm your host, Mark Goddard. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Mark... Uh, no, a bit like... I screwed that one up again. <laughs> every time, every week, I screw this up. No, a bit like... Sup? <laughs> Marcus Wallace. Hello. Guys, it's a special episode this week. We actually have guests. People actually want to join us on the podcast. Well... That's <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Right? <laughs> I'm very excited about this, and the guys are excited about this. So a little bit of history of why we've asked these guys to be on. On the first episode, if you remember back, way back a year ago when we started this, um, we watched two films. It was Scream, and no, we don't have anybody from the cast of Scream on. I do apologise. But we do have two amazing people from one of the best films I've seen at Fright Fest over the last few years of being at Fright Fest, and that is the summer of 84. So we'd like to welcome onto the, sh- onto the podcast. He is the producer and co-writer of Summer 84. That's Matt Leslie. Hey. And his co-writer, Stephen J. Smith. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, guys. And you already see, we're not that professional on this podcast. That's the best kind. Yeah, we're not that yeah. professional either, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we got you guys to pick the films for us on this podcast. So before we uh, get started and you know, ask, ask you the questions that you know, you're probably used to people asking you on these things, why did you pick these films this week? And tell us what films you picked. Uh, well, so we picked um, Satan's Slaves and we picked The Devil's Candy. And um, I mean, honestly, to me, I, I picked them because I've been wanting to see them and I've heard good things. Steve, what about you? Yeah, same. I mean, Satan's Slaves, I've heard really good things about for a while. And then Devil's Candy was, or The Devil's Candy was something that was kind of newish. I think, I think, Matt, you actually suggested it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So just kind of went along with that one. Sure. That's the best way of doing it. That's how we pick it. <laughs> yeah, we just pick the pictures if it looks good. <laughs> Simple, man. <laughs> Pretty yeah. picture. I well, he's a good, good poster. I'll get you. Yep. So, to guys, um, tell us a bit about yourself. So, if I start with, with Matt first, um, tell us a bit about yourself and your history of horror um, and why you're, why, why you're a fan of horror. Sure. Um, well, when we were, we were kind of joking around before the we started recording. I told you the, the American Werewolf in London story. That's, that's really – so the, the story is that when I was maybe like seven years old, I, uh, my parents were watching American Werewolf in London in the living room of my, my house. And I kind of crept down the hallway behind them and watched over their shoulders. And they didn't know I was there. And that movie scared the shit out of me. Like, I mean, just for years, I was just terrified of werewolves and like – I still am. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, but it was just such a good movie and it just like hooked me into horror, like, cause of how it made me feel. Like there's just something so cool about, uh, what, how horror makes, makes you feel. And, um, so, you know, for, for me, that's kind of what, what got me into it. Um, and what about you, Steve? Uh, yeah, I came into horror actually from like the literate side i guess like i i I read a lot of horror when i was younger but i wasn't allowed to watch horror until i was like 12 or 13 i think or something like that so like horror movies were like you know the vhs boxes in the video store that were just like the coolest boxes in the video store but you were terrified of what was on the back you know that's (laughs) what it was for me for a long time 
and then but I liked scary stories to read the dark and all that kind of stuff and um and then I came to it basically a friend wanted to go see Scream and so I went to see Scream in the theater and that was my first theater experience with horror and loved it yeah yeah loved it so much and then like went out and then just started you know eating up horror everywhere I could find it and been a fan ever since awesome so we said about uh, the horror writers and the horror books you read. What kind of things did you like back then? Is it more like Stephen King or did you have a bit more obscure taste in your horror, not horror fiction? No, it was definitely mainstream. I mean, it was like Stephen King, some Dean Koontz, um, Anne Rice to an extent is horror, you know, like that kind of a stuff. Um, like I said, like scary stories to tell in the dark, like compilations like that. Um, and it's just like, you know, it just fills your imagination with all like, everything you kind of, you know, you have nightmares about or like, you know, like what's in my closet, you know, when you're little and, you know, it's just, and the writing of it is so interesting. Like the way they draw you into the story and you kind of, you meet these characters and you start to care about the characters. And then all of a sudden it spins you off into supernatural crazy town, you know, and it was just a, just a really cool storytelling way to, you know, have universal themes and stuff pop up. And so it was just really exciting to read all that stuff when you were little. I definitely get the sort of Stephen King vibe. From summer of '84, yeah, oh, cool. for sure, for cool. sure. definitely an influence. Yeah. So, what about um, kind of directors and producers yourselves? I mean, um, start with Stephen this time. What is there anybody out there, kind of screenwriter-wise, who kind of you look up to when you started started doing kind of screenwriting, or is there anybody that you kind of really, you know, was a big fan of back then? Uh, for screenwriting-wise, I think when I was first getting into it, like. The person that I really looked up to was David Kep, who doesn't really do a lot of horror, but, you know, um, did like Stir of Echoes and um, things like that. And so I'm, at, I'm from Wisconsin, and so is David Kep. He's from like the next town over, and he's like one of the, the biggest screenwriters in the business. So he was always, uh, you know, an influence and somebody I looked up to. Um, and I mean, in recent years, like uh, Gary Dollarman has really just sort of owned the horror space. And the, what he's doing with horror is so interesting in the way he you know, builds in these massive scare set pieces into these movies where, you know, you it's it's almost like the movie has like just enough plot to keep you going from scare set piece to scare set piece to scare set piece and still care about the characters and everything. And I think hmm. his writing has really been changing the game lately. So that's one that Matt and I have both been following a lot. Yeah, very, very How much. You, so. Matt? Well, um... In terms of write screenwriters, I mean, well, so I mean, Doberman is definitely the big one right now. Um a screenwriter who's always really blown me away is Quentin Tarantino. Um, I know it's not specifically horror, but anytime I could get my hands on one of his scripts before the movie comes out, I would just, you know, devour it. Uh, I remember getting the script for Inglorious Bastards and reading that and being like, I cannot wait for this. And it was like another two years until the movie came out. But um, he just has such an evocative way of writing. And... Uh, yeah, so he's he's definitely like the big one. And then another writer who I really love their screenwriting who's not horror is a guy named Eric Roth who wrote Forrest Gump and he wrote The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I remember reading mm. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which was not a good movie because they changed it from the script. The script, I was crying while I was reading it. It was so powerful. And then the, the movie came out and they changed the, the character dynamics in such a, 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 a weird, wonky kind of way that it just, did, it just, did, it just didn't stick. Um, but... But yeah, I mean that, that that's those are those are three writers that I think are are just like super super talented. Cool, cool. Uh, guys, you got any other questions for Arga? Yeah, how did you get those scripts so fast? Uh, you mean the Tarantino ones? Yeah, like did you break in 
I mean, uh, no. So, well, so the the quick version is for the for until 2017, I spent about seven, six years as a development executive. I worked for two different producers, and so. Um, I worked for a guy named Matt Alvarez and we worked on movies like Ride Along and Straight Outta Compton. Uh, and then I went over and worked for a guy named Scott Bernstein who just made a movie called The Turning. Um, and he has the new Aretha Franklin biopic coming out. So when I worked for them as a development executive, I got to be a part of what they call tracking boards. And I don't know if this is a concept you guys have ever heard of, but basically executives in the, in the, in Hollywood kind of share resources on, on these like Google forums where they'll someone like I could say, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, uh, in search of such and such script, does anybody have it? And then someone will email it to me. Or like I, I'm, I need someone's phone number, I need someone's email address, or I need this list that just came out, or whatever. And we all just kind of share resources and information. And so, because I was a development executive, um, I still am on those tracking boards and, and have been for you know, I guess five or six years. So it, would, it enables you to have access to to things that um, that you know the average person can't can't find, which is really really helpful. I mean, even to this day, Steve and I will be like, oh, like shit, that like there's a movie that just sold at Sundance called The Night House, and it was like sold for like twelve million dollars or something. And then I was like, I we have to read that script, and I was able to get it through the resources on the tracking board through through different contacts. So um, you know, it's it's a really helpful thing um, that. Uh, that I'm thankful I, I can still tap into. Sounds like a really cool thing to be a part of. It is. It's great. It's yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very, very helpful. And it's really good for building relationships with other people in the business too. So it's uh, very, a very fortuitous thing that I got to be a part of that. Hmm. We need to get on this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Marcus makes his new movie. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't. You don't yeah, if you're that. a producer, if you're a producer, they get you on there too. So you can be a development executive, you can be a producer, you can be a manager, an agent. Each tracking board kind of is different. Like some are just for development executives, some are just for assistants who work for producers, some are just for agents, some are just for managers. So it's like it just depends. And um, there's a, there's a, there's actually a ton of them out there. So I'm on like five of them. So it's it, it's really it, because of the diversity of those you can find pretty much anything. Wow, very cool. Marcus, Fun fact of Marcus, the day. Any questions? Just got uh, one real quick. Uh, what got you both? Uh, uh, sorry, what sort of time did you both uh, start writing? Like, what made you both think this is what you wanted to do, and made you just go on from there? Yeah, I this is Steve. I came from a visual background, so I started off wanting to be an animator, and I went to uh, college to be an animator. But part of that is you have to do like years and years and years of just kind of like still lifes and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was just getting really boring doing the same type of like, draw this vase, now draw that vase, you know, like that kind of stuff. And so I took an elective class in creative writing. And uh, when I was in there, my professor just basically said, like, your writing style is so crazy visual because you're coming from an art background. And he's like, it's so good. Your writing's great, but it's very, very visual. And, you know, I think you should be a writer. And I loved having more control over the content of what I was doing and being able to build out full worlds instead of just a single image. And so I pursued fiction writing for a little bit. But then when I got done with college, I just sort of had this revelation of like, oh, well, visual writing. I, I've loved movies forever. Movies are visual. It also needs a screenwriter. And so I kind of came to it through that angle and just put everything together that I loved and then moved to LA right after college and took a, I was in the UCLA program for a year to learn how to 
do screenwriting formatting and haven't stopped since then. Damn. How many years ago was that, Steve? Uh, I was in the UCLA program 2000, fall of 2003 to spring of 2004. So, been a minute. Damn. You got me beat. I've been been screenwriting since 2007. So... Uh, that explains why you're so much better at, at than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I got I got into it in 2007. I was living in New York City, and I had a friend who, um, I, at the time, I had a website design company, and I wrote. I know I've always been a writer, and I was writing white papers and stuff for the for the for my website design company, and like about you know website tech and all that stuff. This is before Squarespace and Wix made it so easy for everybody to just build their own site. So my buddy read one of my white papers and he was like, dude, you're such a good writer and you're a fanatic with movies. Like, have you ever tried writing a screenplay? And I honestly didn't even know that was a thing. Like, I love movies, but I never thought about anything beyond the surface because it was never accessible. I lived in, I grew up in Massachusetts. It was never something that I was ever going to be able to do. Well, what was I going to, you know? So um, when he said that to me, he, he recommended that book Story by Robert McKee. And I read that book in like a weekend and was just flummoxed and felt like I could never do it. And then I went like a month later to see Robert McKee's workshop in New York City, which was awesome, but also terrifying because Robert McKee, I don't know how much you guys know about that guy, but he's kind of like, he's, he's, there's a character in the movie adaptation based on him. He's this very curmudgeonly older kind of screenwriting guru who basically says, you're an idiot. You can't do this. Don't try to do this. But if you're going to try to do this, Here's how you're supposed to do it, but you're going to fuck it up. So don't try to do this. You know, like that's basically the prevailing <laughs> attitude of his whole seminar and stuff. And so I read that book and I was like, man, this is just too hard. I don't think I can ever do it. And then I found that book, Save the Cat um, by Blake Snyder. Yeah. And I, I read that book and I was like, well, I think I can do this. And uh, that kind of helped me. And then I went and I was a part of a, a different uh, workshop. I moved to LA. I'd still been screenwriting. I moved to LA. My wife got a job in LA. So we're in LA and it felt all the, all the closer. And I ended up going to a writing workshop that was on the Fox lot. And Blake Snyder was a guest. Like a, This is, by the way, like a month before he died. So I got to meet him and hang out with him before he passed. And he was like, the, he was just such a good dude and such like a bright just soul. You can just tell he loves movies. And um, But anyway, Save the Cat really is what kind of made it feel like it was accessible and doable. And from there, you know, I met Steve at a screenwriting workshop in Silver Lake in California here in LA. And uh, the two of us were kind of the only two in the class who we felt like, like I, I remember thinking he's the only one in here who has any idea what he's doing. Uh, and, and, you know, I think he kind of felt a little bit maybe the same way. And, you know, I think I was more green than he was. He was already pretty polished. Like the shit that he would bring into that workshop, I was like, damn, this is like really good. Oh, and uh, the, wor- and the, the guy who was teaching the workshop, really, really nice guy. But I think he kind of was like, I don't know if I can teach this kid anything, you know. Like, <laughs> so so me, me and Steve just kind of would, you know, we got along really well. And then I kept seeing him at what I call like the underbelly of screenwriting in L.A. Because there's all these predatory. I mean, I call them predatory. I don't think they intentionally are like, I'm going to like just get money out of people. But like people who don't have any real business teaching screenwriting or you know, things like that, who like charge you money to do their like weekend seminar or to like buy their, their instructional book on how to write or, and I kept seeing him at all the same stuff, like the screenwriting expo, which is this massive thing in downtown LA. I'd bump into him there and like, you know, I just kept seeing him everywhere. And then, um, Steve, what was it? That was when writer's boot camp happened and you ended up moving away. We, uh, we did this 
two-year program called Writer's Boot Camp that was based in Santa Monica. And we signed up for it independently and then ended up being put into the same class. And it's like, I don't know, what was it, like 10 to 10, 12 people, something like that, Matt, each class? Okay. Yeah. And so it was kind of like the same setup. Like you learn a little bit of a new way to break down screenplay structure. And then you're expected to write screenplays while you're in there and bring in pages for the class to read. And, you know, kind of carried on from that group that we were in prior where it was like Matt and I were just like, damn, like, you know, this guy can write, you know, and like and we kept talking about maybe trying to write something together one day. And it just didn't happen while you're we in there. And in the middle of that two year program was when the Great Recession hit in America and everything was tanking. And um, I actually had to move out of state for work to find work. And so it kind of seemed like maybe everything was over. But then I found this contest online that was called the Scriptathon, which no longer exists, unfortunately. But it was write a script in 30 days or less. And that's what you were judged on. So I called Matt and I said, hey, I found this thing like 30 days or less. Like, let's write one together. Let's just come up with something that, you know, is an easy thing to crank out. And let's just try it and see if we if, if we can work together. And we did it. And we ended up winning the entire contest out of like 1,500 entries. Wow. So, so yeah, thanks. So, yes. That's kind of amazing that you two ended up in the same sort of group time and time again. And without that happening, we probably wouldn't have Summer of 84. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think, I don't think it would have because I, I still at the time was feeling very much like, I don't know that I can do this. And then when I met Steve and the two of us combined forces on that, on that script for that contest, it was a rom-com like a male lead rom-com that Steve had a concept for and working with him, I found that like, I'm really good at coming up with ideas when I have a sounding board. So when I'm, yeah. when I'm talking to Steve on the phone, I'm, I, I have a lot of ideas when I'm solitary staring at my computer, I have a hard, much harder time doing that. And so I've found for me, working with Steve allows me to open up my creative mind in a way that I, I have a really hard time tapping into when I'm alone. Um, and so I, yeah, I don't, I don't even know that I would have necessarily kept trying to screenwrite if it, if it weren't for the partnership with Steve, because I, I just, it, I just didn't really feel like I was doing it well enough. So I, I think wow. that's definitely true. Yeah. And I don't think from my end that I would have any of the success that I have so far yet without Matt, because I think like, you know, we're kind of like a dynamic duo, like Matt said, like he, we're really good at throwing ideas at each other. And I think like, we're both really good at like taking the other person's idea and sort of like, yes, and sort of how they do an improv and just building on it and building on it until you get something that's really cool and is going to excite people. And, and then obviously like Matt, you know, is super, super connected everywhere and a, a really great networker. And I'm not, I'm more of the, the quiet, stay in the corner and observe the room kind of person. And so I think like the, the combination of those two forces is really powerful for us. Yeah. Well, it seems to have paid off so far. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 been uh, it's been a fun couple of years, and um, you know it, we're about to direct our first feature, which is a on another uh, short. Um, it was based on a short story that Steve found that we kind of um, we we took it and got the rights to it, and then we brought another writer. Our intention was that we weren't going to write it; we were going to actually because we were at the time writing an assignment. So we brought on this other writer. This guy's name is Abe Brune, and Abe wrote a draft of it, and um, and then we ended up really liking it and then working together and like tweaking it and then kind of did another rewrite and another rewrite. And then before we know it, we were, you know, basically co-writers on it with Abe. And um, 
finally got it greenlit, which is great. And uh, now we're in prep. We're, so we're supposed to start shooting August 4th and we're, we're, we couldn't be more excited. And it's, it's, a, it's another kind of indie uh, horror film. So I think you guys will definitely be, be into it once this thing's done and we'll keep you posted. Good. We're definitely looking forward to seeing that. Good review it on uh, the uh, next episode. Well, when that comes out. they got to make it first, Marcus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, right. I know what I mean. Calm down. I want it now. I'm too eager. <laughs> right. So, let's kick into the first first film. So, we're going with Devil's Candy first. So, yeah. Let me try and describe this one as I do every week. Can I ask real quick, why why is Ethan Embry's character always looking so damp in this movie? I mean, I've never... I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie look like a guy had just showered the entire movie. <laughs> Half of their budget in this film probably went on baby oil. His skin was just oily the entire way through. Yeah. I mean, all the, by the way, credit to Ethan Embry. He's like shredded. I mean, he looks really fit in the movie. Like, he, you know, he did a good job getting prepared for it. But man, he is so damp all the time. <laughs> Has anybody seen uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah, for sure. It's my, one of my yep. favorite shows. He started to look a bit like cricket. <laughs> yeah, he did. He looks like rickety yeah. cricket. <laughs> so true. That started to change the whole film. Yeah. Couldn't take it seriously after that. <laughs> Find yourself laughing in every scene. So I'm sorry, I cut you off though. Sure. You were about to describe the movie. No, 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 don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> the boys always cut me off anyway, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you're on about. <laughs> cool. So that was candy. Quick blurb. Special right. Recompense. So it revolves around a family who move into a new home. Um that home they find out two people have died inside the home. Um, on a side note of this, at the same time, we have a guy playing a heavy metal guitar, trying to drown out voices in his head. Um, we find out this is the son of the people who were living inside the house. Um, they died. His, yeah, they died. Yeah. Um, so they went over the house. He's still hearing the noises in the voices, but on the other side, Ethan Embry's uh, character, Jesse, is also hearing voices. It's helping him do his art. And he's basically drawing um, dark, dark imagery. Um, his daughter seems to be kind of the main focus of these drawings. And it, she, she is meant to be this kind of catalyst, in a way, of what's going on. Um, and we get the guy... Um, is, it Ray, is it Ray, the, the guy who breaks into that? I'm not too sure on the name of the character. I'm not sure that's... I think it is Ray. Yeah, yeah, I think it's called Ray. Yeah. So um, Ray just basically wants to get her, um, saying that she's special, and you know, um, basically he's gonna kill her. We know this. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of like a two-way devil de- devil thing, really. It's like he's like her father Jesse is kind of premonition in it through artwork, while Ray is trying to like, live it. Um, I probably butchered. No, that's really no, that's. I think you did a pretty good job. Can we? By the way, can we? Is this spoilers? Like we can say whatever. Oh yeah, you can spoil the hell out of this. Okay, so I think for me, I think this is a really cool stylistic movie. Like I, I, Mm. I think to be the setup of this guy who's just really creepy, who is hearing the the voice of the devil, and that voice is telling him to kill children is a really disturbing kind of conceit, right? And then throwing into heavy metal, which, by the way, heavy metal, like, I can't listen to heavy metal because it just gives me pure anxiety. So that's, 
like it's very grating to me. So if, when I hear every that, the whole movie, whenever that would play, it would really like, you know, really it helped me get to the place where I was like, this is really there's a lot of dread building here. But I have such a confusing like I didn't understand what was going on. So yeah, <laughs> let me let me try to work this through. So there's I wrote this down. I wanted to read. So there's a suggestion that Ethan Embry's character is essentially making a deal with the devil. So that, so that he can basically like paint better, right? Like like he's mm. or no, I'm sorry. The devil he's hearing these voices and suddenly he can paint like he's never painted before, right? Suddenly mm. he's like channeling true art through his paintbrush and then suddenly there's an agent or a manager of some kind played by the great uh, I think his name's Tony Amendola. He's just like one of those classic character actors. And that guy wants to represent him. And it's played almost to suggest that Amendola is perhaps the devil. And, and there was like, he's trying to make a deal with Ethan Embry's character through this glass of whiskey. And if, if Ethan Embry would drink the glass of, or, or maybe it was scotch, I think, um, scotch whiskey. And so if Ethan mm. drinks this scotch, then he's, the deal is sealed. Like, I felt like that was the breaking point of the movie. Like, if he drank that that his daughter was definitely going to die, but he doesn't drink it, right? So he refuses to do it, ultimately, I think, saving mm -hmm. his daughter's soul. That was, like, my takeaway. But that brings me back to the first point, which is, like, why you, you get the feeling that Ethan Embry is channeling the voice of the devil just like the bad guy is, except mm. Ethan Embry ends up freeing the dead girls, the souls of the dead girls that the other guy killed because of the voice, so I'm like, wait a minute. So the, the devil is basically telling one guy to kill little girls and telling the other guy how to find them and free their souls. Isn't that, that weird? Make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It would, have been, it would have been way better if there were ghosts in the house that were telling him one thing, how to find these little girls. He was thinking it was a haunting of some kind. And then he ends up realizing it's the girls. And there was a different voice telling the guy to kill the little girls. But because of it, it just all kind of confused me. I was like, wait a minute. The devil's telling... He's just got this circle going on where he's got one guy killing kids and the other guy freeing them. And I don't know, it just, am I wrong? Or is that what you guys got? Oh, no, no, it confused the hell out of me, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, we, we've watched enough movies on this podcast for it to be, you know, enough indie films at least to know that you can still do it with a story. The story just kind of it, all over the place, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I sort of felt like there wasn't a story. I mean, you've just added more of a story than I got from watching it. <laughs> well, I had to really read into it. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what it has going for it is a really cool setup, and really, it was really well shot. You know, like there was a lot of really cool stuff. Um, you know, like the the way that it was edited and shot. Like, you know, there's the shot of the kid on the swing set, and he swings, and then he as he comes down, you reveal the killers right behind him, and it was like, oh shit. <laughs> That was like a really cool yeah. shot, and um, and then you'd match cut to the painting that Ethan Embry did of his daughter from the kid on the swing set. It was just like really cool stuff like that. It was really, really well shot. The cinematography was great. But yeah, the story, I'm like, this is, to me, what's such a bummer is with a couple of tiny tweaks, this movie could have been like a modern classic. Like, I think it could have been one of those movies that you were like, dude, Devil's Candy's fucking rad. I'll watch it every Halloween or more than that or whatever, but... It just came up kind of short. Steve, what did the you guy think? He plays Ray is really good. Oh yeah, yeah, dude, he's yeah. He's, um, he's great at everything. He's in another film. Uh, I think it was with John Cusack called yep. Identity. Yep, that's an amazing movie. 
It's one of my favourites. So like, good. Yeah. So good. He plays pretty much the same character, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah, yeah. I actually know him as the priest from Constantine more, too, which was like the oh, same yeah. difference, you know? But same kind of like haunted by voices kind of vibe going on with him. He's very typecast, isn't he? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Steve and I, I, I would say like, about, oh, sorry, I kind of like the. Uh, I, I thought something that was interesting that was working for the most part was I thought the the, the dynamic of the family was kind of cool. Like, I can't think of another family dynamic in, in a movie that I've mm. seen recently that was like that, where you kind of see like, you know, the dad's really going after his artistic career, the mom's off to the full time job, stabilizing the family, and then like the relationship between Ethan Embry and the daughter was interesting. So it was like kind of like you know I think like what Matt was saying it's like it had like foundational pieces that were good it just didn't really come together into anything that made sense it was weird yeah mm. how about you Marcus what are your thoughts on this one I well I mean you both well all of you pretty much uh, listed the main four about this film and that the story was just it was all over the place I thought that it was almost like they had more scenes that they had to cut down for some reason uh, the ending was really confusing like you've um, like you've both said, or you, all three of you said about the voices, that if there were different voices, it would have made more sense. Like, I thought it was going to, like, that entire time throughout the film, I thought that it was leading to the uh, the dad be, uh, being set up as the killer, because I thought this uh, the big guy is burying these kids right outside his door, he's getting away with the murders each time, this guy's just moved in, he's coming across a bit insane. I thought, they're going to find the bodies, and they're going to think he's killed them. And then it just completely twisted and didn't take that approach. So I just I got very confused, and I really thought that the um, the killer was uh, Carl Gas from Tenacious D at first. So, uh, <laughs> they do look a lot of like that. Am I the only one who made that mistake? They do look similar. <laughs> no, it's the, it's, the, it's the guitar. It's the guitar. <laughs> I had to look it up. Any particular scenes uh, any of you guys actually really liked that really stood out to you in this one? I. Uh, I should really, I should really say, say a person, yeah. shouldn't I? Really? Um, <laughs> no, there you go. You go. <laughs> yeah, go for I, it. I liked pretty much, like you said, all the filming in it is pretty good. But I, I do know the scene that it lost me. Um, hmm. Right near the end, there's the scene in the daughter's bedroom where everything is on fire. And you have that hmm. kind of shot that you have in most horror films where you see the guy and he's either a demon or the devil or you know and they, it felt like they had set that bit up but it it didn't happen it was just the fat guy you know when you could sort of see his face through the flames yeah and it sort of lingered there for a while and it just i just thought that they had missed a few tricks there like mm. yeah yeah there were I a couple I definitely feel they could have done more there were a couple scenes that kind of were like not great to me that were just like, you know, could have been better. Like there's the scene where like Ethan Embry at the end, he has his baseball bat, like he's going to do something and then is instantly like just taken out. It does nothing with the bat. I was like, what bro? Come on. You spent the whole movie looking shredded and super capable of defending your family. And like you have a baseball bat and instantly are just like, yeah, it's just, that was just like, oh, come on. And then there was another scene where um, Ethan Embry loses control of his car on the road when he's hurrying to get his daughter. And I've never seen a car skid out for so long and go wobbly and not tip over. It was kind of comical. And I just laughed so hard in that scene. It was supposed to be like an emotional scene. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, the first act of this movie is awesome to me. Because I was like, where is this going? This is amazing. I'm super, I'm all in. 
and then it just kind of it just didn't it just didn't coalesce as well as I'd hoped. But uh, still, a lot of points for me in terms of style, and um, I'll watch whatever the director makes next because I'm sure at some point he's going to be able to to match the storytelling with the aesthetic. And then I think he's going to make a movie that everyone's like, that movie is the shit. So. I think you need to do him a script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, if, you, if you're hearing this, we're, we're, we'll make ourselves available. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, oh, Mark, you're going to have to explain our uh, keep it or bin it system or trash it if you're American. This, this, this is going to be really uh, offensive to these guys. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, we catch those. <laughs> no, do you want to explain, explain our system to, be, to, our, to our guests? Basically, we don't rate films. We basically say if we would keep them because we like them or just chuck them in the bin, chuck them in the trash because we don't want to watch them anymore. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to go first. I would keep it. I, I, fully, I will fully watch this one again because um, there's a lot of stuff that I did like about it, despite the fact that the story kind of fell apart. I feel like the story... Like, it's almost like I fill in the gaps of the problems in my head so that it was better than it was because I'm like, well, all you got to do is change it from Ethan Embry hearing the devil's voice to he's hearing something else. And then the devil <laughs> comes and offers him a glass of scotch and to sign him as his agent. And he turns it down. And then he, the voices continue to, to tell him to find these girls. Like, to me, there was like a version of this that was so subtly different that it would have been a lot better that like I, it's forgivable. So I... I'll totally watch this again at some point. I like that. I wish I was like that. I wish I could watch something that was terrible. I'm not saying this is terrible, but <laughs> I can't watch something, watch something terrible. that was terrible and then just make up a better story. <laughs> that's definitely a skill. So that's two keeps. Yeah, I'll I'll keep. I'll go with a keep too, Steve. Um, yeah, I think like if it like Matt said, like like every time that I watch something that's like this, it's like it's close. Like it's. I, in ways, like, certain scenes are inspiring. So, like, you know, like, as as a writer, you can, you know, like I was saying, like, the family dynamic is interesting. So maybe that's something that's, like, a, a nugget of that can come out in something that you're working on, mm -hmm. and, you know. And, uh, yeah, and stylistically, it was just neat. So I don't know that I'll, have, I'll, like, rush to watch it again, but I think it's cool that it exists, and so I'll keep it. Yeah, okay. I agree. Cool. cool. Uh, no, keep up in it. Uh, I'm going to keep it. I, yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite. But I didn't hate it. I quite enjoyed watching it, to be honest. I liked all the characters. Um, okay. Yeah, I just think they just didn't go very far with it. And you know what else, too? It's like, when next time you're cold and it's like the winter, just put it on and you'll see Ethan Embry and you'll feel like you're sweating, too. So, <laughs> there's always that. And uh, Marcus? Oh, oh, I feel like I'd be a prick if I uh, bend it now. <laughs> nah, um, I probably would keep it, but only just, though, because... The camera angles are amazing. Uh, the scene, especially when um, it kept flicking back and forth uh, almost straight away uh, to him painting, to blood, uh, they were all executed really well. It's just the story was left so much to the imagination that I feel like if you didn't have a creative mind, the story's just going to look shit. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, was a, it was a good film. And uh, yeah, naturally, who wouldn't want to see Ethan all oiled up? So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're new obsession now, Marcus. Nah, Chris Evans. <laughs> we got away, we got away from Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I don't want to be the prick and say... Yeah. Um, That's two people now who've said, I don't want to be the prick and say that I... Yeah. <laughs> we know how you really Basically, are, right? said it we've got at least two people trashing it, but they're, but they're being kind right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has good moments. And... <laughs> What this is like the is? politician's answer. <laughs> go outside, like don't go well, outside. Like... Stay indoors, don't get indoors. <laughs> There's parts of it I like. I just think due to the story, just being all over the all over the shop, the visuals just didn't save it enough. Even though I loved the visuals of the painting, um, even the final scenes in the fire, I, I quite liked that scene in general. But um, I'm going to have to bin it, guys. I'm sorry, but... Um, it's just due to the story alone and the kind of, you know, just being all over the place. I, I Yeah, I can't keep this one, unfortunately. God, Mark, you're such a prick. Yeah. I know. Hell. I am such a prick. <laughs> Before we go into the second film, um, are you guys happy to ask some questions about uh, Summer of 84? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Make them quick. <laughs> I'm just going to ask the big one. I'm going to ask it straight out. Yeah. Are you going to make a sequel? <laughs> 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 well, I mean, so the 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 answer is no, and and it's not because we don't wouldn't want to. It's because indie film doesn't really support sequels because there's no money. Like our movie was a really small movie; it never really got a proper theatrical release. We we were on I think a hundred a hundred screens um, for for the first two weeks after release, which is we were excited about because we you know people could see our movie in theaters. But there's no box office numbers to support a sequel. Like it's all, sequels always come down to financial, making financial sense. That's all anyone cares about on the, on the business side of, of film. And if you don't really get a theatrical release, then you didn't make enough money to really justify a sequel. So in general, you can pretty much assume that any movie that didn't get into theaters is not going to have a sequel. Like that's pretty, so yeah. we, we would love, I mean, we, we wrote it to be a standalone, to be completely honest with you, but we also were like, it's a very fertile world that we we love talking about and, and thinking about. And we've even considered doing it like as a graphic novel sequel or something like that, just as like a, cause like, you know, a graphic novel is, is not going to be as expensive and we can still, we can still tell like a, a broader expansive story that, that is, you know, I think maybe cooler that, that a sequel would need to be, you know, but mm. I don't know. Steve, that'd what, be very cool. Yeah. I mean, it'd be fun, right? Steve, what, what, what do you think? I mean, Everything you said, yeah, basically, you know, we've, we've talked about it. We've even thought about like, is there like any sort of like series potential, like any, any other format that we could do that might get a green light. But as of right now, there's no plans to, to sequelize. It's just left in your head. What happens to Mackie and Davey as they go on? Okay. I have a follow-up question. Unofficially between you two, and you don't have to tell us, do you know what happens in the sequel? Like in your brains? I think we've talked about it enough that like we have a fairly good idea of what we would do if we could figure out yeah. just how to deliver it. Yeah. Why don't see? Why don't you give them the quick pitch just so that that it's like you know it'll, at least then it's out there. People can know where our heads are at. Oh, we can keep it all bin it. I like this. <laughs> um, well, the quick pitch was that well, I don't know what details are going to be off, obviously, but the quick pitch is the idea that like it would it would there would be some time that passes and then. Davey has basically spent his life obsessed with, you know, looking over his shoulder. When is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Living in fear. And um, we talked about, you know, the sequel would be when Davey is older now 
and he has a kid who is coming to a certain age. And then that's when Mackie decides to come back and actually torture Davy Double again by going after the kid rather than Davy. Ooh, that's super smart. I definitely like the idea of that, right? We're pitching it to Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, Marcus, any questions for the guys? Oh, I do have some questions. First one is quite a simple one. How long did this take you both to write? It was actually really quick. Um, We, so in general, our process is fairly quick, but I think like Matt kind of kicked around the idea and Matt, you can talk about that in a second, like where it came from if you want. And then um, we outlined it in just a couple weeks. And then I think the first draft of the script probably took us like a two months max to do. And then just a little quick polish. And I think we were, we were good to go and kind of showing it around after about three months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny, like this is, I mean, this is probably like almost a year before stranger things came out. So that when that trailer came out, that really took the wind out of our sails because we, we were in the process of showing it around um, we had the directors already attached and there were places that were very interested. And then Stranger Things trailer hit and people were like, oh, yeah, Bet that was gutting. It was really gutting because we were like, well, I mean, look, I don't, I'm not going to hate on Stranger Things. I think season one is like a masterpiece. It was a it was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it's just it was they took all the best bits of the 80s movies and just synthesized it into a really cool modern story like I. You know, I watched it in total envy because that was like, that was kind of what we were trying to do, you know, and no one had done that in a long time. So we were like, we've got something really cool here. And then that trailer hit and we were like, well, damn now, like even to this day, people will be like, clearly they're, they're ripping off Stranger Things. And we're just like, oh my God, no, we're not. We're ripping off the Goonies. We're ripping off Stand By Me. We're ripping off Fright Night. We're ripping off like, you know, we're not ripping off Stranger Things, believe me. But, um... But, you know, I get I get where that comes from. There's a little bitterness, but it's like very, very minor because at the end of the day, we still got the movie made. Um, you know, I, we're, we're proud of it. I think that we, we think the directors did an awesome job, uh, you know, putting on screen the shout out to RKSS, who their, their other movie, Turbo Kid, is also a really cool, fun movie. Um, and I've heard, there, I've heard so many good things about that film. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and I think they'll be directing another movie soon. So yeah, they're, uh, they're great, but yeah, we're, you know, it was a fun one to be a part of. We shot it in Vancouver and it was just a blast. So it was cool. Very cool. There was actually a, a scene in summer of 84, which I noticed, uh, speaking of turbo kid, when Davy cleans his closet, just before finding the walkie talkies, you actually see one of the little figurines. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of Easter eggs in that movie that we were like, cause we were all just eight like geeks of, you know, various movies like. You know, some of you guys might have spotted when they're in the treehouse, they're drinking McCready's Irish whiskey, which is obviously a, uh, a shout out to the thing. And there's just stuff like that throughout. There's like, um, we, we even had at the bowling alley exterior, there's a sign for a, um, a Chinese food restaurant um, that, that is like a throwback, a, a call out to um, Big Trouble in Little China um, called the Pork Chop Express. And like, there's just, just tons of stuff like that that are just buried throughout the movie. And, and it was just a fun thing to to do. And I think the coolest one that we're most stoked about is Steve and I wrote a, a TV pilot called Polybius based on an urban legend from the eighties um, about an arcade cabinet that we could, could control your mind. And so we put, we had, we had our pr- production designer in the bowling alley. We had three arcade machines and one of them was just a blank arcade machine that, you know, they, they found somewhere. And we were like, why don't we turn that into a Polybius cabinet? 
because there's like some artwork online that is like what that cabinet supposedly looked like. So we turned it into a Polybius cabinet and said it was out of order. And it's, that's in the background of the, of the bowling alley scene, which is, so yeah, there's just a lot of that's stuff so in there. Cool. By the way, if you don't know Polybius, Google it. It's fascinating. That's what I'll be doing tonight. <laughs> Got some homework. Yeah. <laughs> I do actually have a, a quick question following up on a point that uh, Stephen made earlier about uh, making it into a series. Is that some like is making Summer of eighty four into a series something that you both thought of before? Because uh, I felt there was so much detail into this film that it could have very easily been split up, and you could have explained certain bits a lot more. Even had spin off stories about the characters' home life, uh, all the things behind everyone's closed doors. Is that something that you both uh, considered doing? Or yeah, we thought about it for a minute. We uh, we actually kind of talked it over a little bit with the production company and um you know exactly like you said like that it's a, it's a world that has so much potential to kind of like dig a little farther in like you know we we definitely made an effort in the movie to sprinkle in scenes like when eats is walking outside and you hear his parents arguing or when you see woody and his mom and we had a scene that we wrote in the script but didn't end up making it into the movie where you where you meet faraday's parents and they're like super strict on his homework and you know want him to be you know super educated and that kind of thing and so in addition to that, just like then the idea of, you know, this whole, that's why they invented curtains, like, you know, like whatever happens behind closed doors and you could, you know, expand out that world and see more of that that surrounded the, the story. But we, uh, we just never really had a, had a chance to dig really deep into it and crack it yet as a series idea. But it, it was something we kicked around for a little bit. Yeah, the tough part about it is that like, if you said to us, you could just do it as a limited series where it's one season then we could knock that out of the park. Eight episodes of that would be awesome to write and it would be great. But when you start talking about season two and season three, then it starts to get watered down and you're starting to, you start to be like, well, what is season two going to be about? Because season one is going to end with like a moment that, you know, is maybe feels very final. Someone dies or like something happens in season two. Like, I mean, maybe you could do two seasons. So season one is 1984 and season two is the sequel we just described that that's cool but no one wants that in hollywood they were they're like i want five seasons if you can't if you can't pitch me a concept and then like a rough idea of what five seasons at least looks like no one's really interested unless you're like some like og like ava duvernay who's going to pitch a one season uh you know show and they're like whatever you want to do we're cool because it's going to be like awards gold and it's going to be like you know um like sort of just one of those series that everyone talks about you know until you're that you can't really pitch limited series and be taken seriously so um it would be really hard to do i think summer ready for for more than a couple seasons and have it be good and that's very obviously we don't want to do that so i think you're right i think it's better to have too little than way too much yeah that's by the way that's like that's the uk model like the office is my favorite show of all time i never even watched the american version because the ricky gervais version was just so much better but it's like they'll do two seasons and then they call it a day I mean, he does that That's over and over so again. Weird. Because <laughs> just take the car. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> like every everything that we see is like sort of Americanized. I mean, we're seeing that with going back to Stranger Things now, because they they probably should have stopped that. Yeah. Now. yeah. Well, yeah. Season but, one was great, and every season since then's been not. I mean, the, the other two seasons have been like I, I really. So season two was okay, and I really thought last season was like a whole different tone. I mean, it was like more of like a poppy yeah. comedy than it was like a season one was serious and dark and ominous. And I feel like that's kind of been eroded. I'm hoping they go back to their roots of that for season four. Cause I think it's the final season if I'm not mistaken, but yeah, 
It's hard to make a series go be good for that long, though. I mean, like, I it's really, really hard. I have got a quick question. How long we got? How long we got? Uh, Not long. Probably the final question. Um, Right, last. Basically, last scene in the film, you see Tommy and Curtis basically chucking things outside of. Is it Curtis's house? Uh, That's outside of Eats' house. Eats' house. Yeah. Um, Are they like not friends anymore, or I was a bit confused by that relationship there yeah the sort of the idea is that like what they're chucking is sort of like the pieces of the treehouse that they used to be in so it's kind of like uh, you know right. because davy kept pushing and pushing and he wouldn't let it go despite everybody saying let it go and it turns out he was right but the sort of you know the the consequences of that are they lost a buddy and it kind of fractured their friendship and so that's why you know they're taking down the tree it's sort of like the passage from we were kids and now the dark world has moved into this neighborhood and, you know, just consumed everything. And so it's kind of the idea is that, yeah, they might still be kind of like friends, but it's it's definitely not the same. And they for sure have resentment against Davey for sort of destroying, breaking up the band, basically. Yeah. Oh, it's really sad. I wish I hadn't asked now. <laughs> <laughs> well, from one depressing uh, moment now to a, uh, to a another film. <laughs> So, second film. I know we haven't got you guys for long, so we'll try and get through this as quick as we can. Um, we got Satan's Slaves as our second film. Uh, Marcus, as usual, I'll get you to do the second description. Please go for it. <laughs> okay, well, basically, uh, just to start off with, did everyone watch the subbed version or the dubbed version? I watched the dubbed version. I did the, the main version. The proper version. Sub. Okay, because um, I tried watching the dub and oh, I, I couldn't. That's why I watched <laughs> it, it just... all. It was so bad. It was hilarious. Right, okay. Uh, I'm just going to read out the description that's on IMDb. Uh, so, after dying from a, a strange illness uh, that suffered for three years, uh, a mother returns home to pick up her children. So, um, basically, uh, it's a, a, quite a large family. Um, their mother's quite ill. They're not sure why. She used to be a very famous singer, had a, a hit release, and uh, it the royalties were just drying up. They weren't getting much money anymore. They're starting to become quite poor. And they didn't know what to do. Uh, they, at the beginning of the film, it opens up with um, one of the uh, the daughters, uh, basically, is it the daughter that gets cut off? Yeah, I think it's the daughter. They basically gets told, look, your royalties are gone now. There's no, there's no money left. Uh, so they're struggling what to do. Uh, one of the sons uh, sells his motorbike to try and get a bit of money. Uh, the father decides to go away to try and get a bit of money to bring back. Within this time that he's gone, a lot of shit goes down. The mother ends up dying. The, um, oh yeah, spoilers by the way. <laughs> mother ends up dying. Um, the grandmother ends up dying. One of the little kids almost dies, but they manage to save him. And the whole story is basically based around they feel like their mother's coming back to haunt them. They also, uh, sorry, another key point is they also live right next to a graveyard, which is always a bad sign in a horror film. Um, all these uh, weird paranormal things happen. Uh, again, they think it's the mother. Turns out, the youngest son, the little boy, who is uh, meant to be a a mute, I believe, or he's deaf at least. He has to use sign language to talk. He ends up being the devil's son, and um, there's a, a, re- a weird ritual thing that's been happening. So basically, uh, every six years, uh, your youngest uh, child uh, gets taken as a sacrifice. Am I correct in saying that? Was, uh... That's what they, yeah. Yeah. The reason why this is such a large family is every sort of five years or so, the mother would try and have another child to stop her last child getting taken. Um, of course, as she dies, she can't have another kid. Uh, so this last son is the devil's son, and uh, they all try and uh, kill the rest of the uh, the family. And uh, some weird Jesus fellow uh, ends up saving them. 
yeah, I think I butchered much. that a little bit. Yeah. You've done well. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, this one was, I think, very confusing for me. Like I, you know, especially when the, in the end, suddenly there's like zombies and shit. It just, it just fell way, it just went way off the rails to me. I think it had a, a lot of really cool, effective, um, scare moments to me. Like, um, mm. like a few of them that I really love. There's a shot early on when their mom like looks toward the ceiling to, or no, I think, is it the, the sister looks toward the ceiling terrified and then the daughter wait no oh that's another thing i wanted to bring up by the way is the girl who's the daughter i thought was the guy's wife for like the yeah, longest I time i was like oh okay and then i was like yeah so that that had me really confused for quite a while but uh the shot is that when their mom is she she looks toward the ceiling terrified and then the daughter looks up but nothing is there the shot just lingers like for like a really long amount of time, I thought that was a really effective choice and like had me, you know, kind of gave me goosebumps. There was another one uh, where the two youngest boys throw the sheet into the air and it lands on a spirit that you couldn't see prior. I thought that was a really dope yeah. moment. And um, I think the most effective, like kind of chilling moment uh, to me was the bell. Like the 16 year old son hears it after his mom has died. It was the bell that his mom always oh, rang when she nice. needed help. Right. And like, so the mom just died and the kid's like bummed out and all of a sudden he hears the bell and he's like, what? So he goes walking up there and opens the door, flips on the light and he hears the bell again and the camera whip pans over and we see the bell fall from the, from the bed onto the floor. I mean, that was such a great, just a great effective thing. Um, but then it, I don't know, I think after the midpoint for me, it just kind of all really fell apart. What did you guys think? Yeah, definitely. I have, Going back to like the scene, the scary scenes, there's a really good bit where the two boys are about to go to sleep and mm. the uh, child who's dead is Ian. He turns around and looks at the other character and he sort of puts his hand up and you can see the shadow of like a sort of monsters, a zombie hand like in the shadow. That bit was really cool for me. I didn't me. notice that didn't notice that bit. Oh, go back and watch it. It's creepy as anything. I really like that bit. But yeah, uh, that was about it, I think. Uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> Wasn't a fan, I think. <laughs> there's literally a rip-off of the ring in here, like scene for scene. I, know, I've written in my notes in here, the, well. uh, the mother looks like she's obviously gone to the ring school of open mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they the must well, have been yeah. watching that film. Well, I like also the way that the siblings learn about the evil spirits is like kind of lame. Like the, the, a magazine article written by some guy, <laughs> yeah. and then the guy writes another article revising the rules at the end, and that's kind of like, and he's just this weird guy who lives in an apartment building. I don't know that there was a lot of little things like that that just compounded for me that I was just like, ah. I mean, I like the setup. It's the same conjuring. It's a conjuring setup. The dad's got to leave to go make money and the family's alone and shit starts going haywire. Like, that's a really good setup, right? Like, uh, you know, there's, they're alone and they've got to figure it out. So, I have I, points for Morgan near the end that the dad was going to be actually like the cult leader or part of the cult or something. Because the way to send him off, it's a bit like, hmm, that's a bit too obvious. So, that's disappointing. I think that was, you know, it would be nice if he was kind of maybe part of that cult and he was actually, you know, the leader of it. Um, made it more of a cult thing instead of a devil thing, personally. But then I, that, that was the issue I had with Hereditary, that it was a cult. So, ignore me. 
you know, it's a bit contradictory. But, you know, I, I found there's it's more of a scene kind of a film. It's there's scenes in this film which are amazing. Yeah. And like you said, the story, not so much. But it's scenes that I love in this in this. We did another previous film we did, The Shining. We said exactly the same. Is The Shining a good film? Or is it is a shining just set pieces that you know and you think oh, I love that scene? How do I hang up? Generally, I don't know how to hang up. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love The Shining. I, I I get it though. I it's one of those things where you you've seen it. I've seen it a million times. I can't separate if it's good from my love for it at this point. You know, like I can't. So I, I don't. I couldn't even answer that in an unbiased way. Yeah, I mean, I, ha- I hate, I hate you now, but I, but I can't. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But no, I mean, like, like, like the bell scene. The bell scene's really good. I like the bell scene. And just, just throughout, just the relationship between the two younger boys. I love that relationship. And the creepiest bit when he kind of he's, he's sleep signing that he wants to kill him. Oh, so yeah. that was a good touch. But you know what? Here's a question for you about that relationship because, like, near the end when the cult is like gathered outside their home and shit is like really hitting the fan. Suddenly, that that second youngest child, his name is Bondi, who's basically been mm. possessed for the entire second act of the film, and like wanting to kill his youngest brother Ian, is suddenly fine again, and he saves Ian yeah. instead. Like I was just like, wait, why? What happened? Why isn't he possessed anymore? Like what? <laughs> and who was possessing him? So that was the grandmother possessing him. Well, she did a really shitty job of killing the kid because like she just possessed <laughs> him and did nothing the whole time. I don't. Yeah, true. I think there were. I think throughout that part, um, there were, I, I'm, I agree with you a lot there. It wasn't very clear, but um, there was a scene with um, the long-haired dude in the apartment. He was basically saying, that if you truly love each other, then they can't take you. And I think that the whole idea was that there's a constant battle between him and the thing possessing him, uh, trying to kill his younger brother, but because he loves him so much, because of the relationship you see, he doesn't do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> sort of we, have now, we have now... Just, that's just for the location. <laughs> I actually had that thought at the end of the movie. I thought, like, is it, I, is it just because, like, for me, I don't know. It felt like it was like lost in translation a little bit, like, re, like the subtitle. Like, I feel like there was more to the mythology that just wasn't coming across that mm. clear, you know. And it maybe was just because of the the fact that it was, you know, you're reading the movie on the screen or listening to the hilarious dubbed version, you know. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> if you've ever played a Metal Gear Solid game or you've ever been in a drama class when you were at say, like, secondary school, and no one wanted to be there, that's the level of dubbed that this version is. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They literally say, um, and R out, so, like, out loud. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the only thing I enjoyed about the film. If you're going to watch it again, <laughs> definitely watch the dubbed version. Very good. So, so is, there, is there any scenes that any of you guys liked? Wait, wait, before we, before we get to that, though, what, the, that random yeah. dude who writes these articles also then comes back to save them? It shows <laughs> yeah, up in a van yeah, again? What was that about? He's like a messiah, isn't he? He's like a messiah, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> it turns up way too late as well. It's like he's just gone, oh, I forgot to do that thing. What was that thing I was going to do? And then the next day, he sort of remember, oh, I was going to pick those guys up because they were going to get murdered. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> It's like, like, guys, I'm back with a new article. Oh, okay. No worries. Get in the car. Here's, a, here's <laughs> another question for you guys because I, I genuinely, like, am I just, did I just miss something? So were the siblings all fathered by different dudes from the cult? Is that what you learned? Oh, yeah. Pretty much. The yeah, mother was, was, like a, was, a, was a cult whore, basically. 
Oh my god. That's why it looks so different. <laughs> See, that didn't make any sense either, because the devil wanted the kid after six years, so why would the cult then keep giving him more have kids? another baby every six years? Yeah. Guys, we just sense. we just broke the film. Where's yeah. the bin? Where's the bin? <laughs> Somebody grab the bin. Been there, have, done that. I have got a question for you guys. Um, who were the uh, who were the two people at the end? Who just um, had a dog. Oh yeah, more cult members, and also like, what was the deal with the berries? Like, yeah. why did the older daughter mm-hmm. pick a couple of them up in the forest, and why did the cult couple at the end have a full jar of them? Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. No, I don't know either. But, so much in, but, in, but in fairness, they could dance really well. <laughs> I genuinely, guys, like I have to say, this was a this was a big disappointment for me because I'd been looking forward to this movie for months. Like I remember when it first showed up on Shutter, people were like, "Yo, Satan Slaves is so good," and we were. I remember being like, "I have to watch that," and for whatever reason, it just took me a really long time. But I was so excited that we were finally doing it, and I I'm kind of a little bit baffled. Like I I. I I really do like though that like, that it revolves around a, a culture and religion that we don't see much of in movies in America. Like I think that's really awesome, and I want to see more stories like that. But I just I don't know. I think part of the issue is that when it comes from a different culture, some of the sensibilities don't overlap. Like I have a really hard time watching like Japanese horror, for example, because I just don't. Yeah. It does. It's like a disconnect for me in terms yeah. of how it works. And I we, feel we like we found was, that when we watched The Ring a couple of weeks back. Um, yeah. We, we struggled with it. That wasn't that just, bad. What was the one that the guy ate a whole entire live octopus? Oh, old boy. Yeah. Oh, that was, <laughs> oh, that was Korean, <laughs> I think. That, that was cla- that's a classic film? movie. You leave old boy out of this. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Korean movies for that are horror that I, I also, same thing. It's just like it kind of just, there's, there's something that's a little bit off from it connecting for me. And I feel like maybe that was mm. part of what it is. Maybe there's like a, there's just sort of a cultural mythology that you either have and it makes sense for you or you don't have it and you're kind of like i don't understand um yeah. like a like a different type of filming style like different type of style of movie that they do because i find grudge is very very hard to get into that's a kind of bit all over the place it's, just me, a, it's a way it's of like telling having stories. a really weird like you don't know what the hell's going on or what any of it means yeah like, we're in a house and then there's zombies and then yeah. there's some ghosts yeah, yeah. and there's some berries I had berries the other day. <laughs> That's exactly that? right. None of them seemed phased by it either. But as soon as like, there's other zombies, they're like, ah, this is a bit shit. Quick, everyone get inside. It's like, you're not going to freak out? Like, Why is there a cord of Well, when you live next to a cemetery, you know what's going to happen eventually, right? So they've just been waiting for this day forever since they moved in. <laughs> oh, man, they had so many funerals in that film. Yeah, they were it's like eight. They were like, oh, let's just have another funeral. I'm pretty bored. <laughs> <laughs> the death scene of the um the uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, the oh, religious the guy, guy yeah. uh, underneath the yeah, truck. His his son. Yeah, like not only did he get pulled under the truck, but they made his face scrape on the road. And I just thought that was a good it scene, was just though. like yeah, it was excessive gore, which I loved. I was like, I wasn't expecting it. It's like shit. I like the piece. It's, like the the it, it's basically the scene in Hereditary where where she gets her head smashed off by the pole. It's it's it works that way. It, Looks well. Yeah, true. So, guys, the question. I'm going to throw it over to Matt and Stephen first. Keep it or bin it? I'm, I'm bin all the way. I Yeah, I'll, I can't watch this again. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I'm going to bin this one. It, just, it was too far out there. You know, cool, cool visuals every now and then. That was about it. 
Yep. And again, this yeah. goes back to, I don't know if the guy who directed it wrote it, but I feel like this is the kind of guy that like, I would, I would be stoked if he would ever direct one of our scripts because I think he would kill it. You know, like he's clearly yeah. a good visual storyteller. I just think the story was not for me. Uh, Marcus, your fault. Uh, keep up in it. Oh, definitely been it. Although I am tempted to watch the dub version at some point. <laughs> <laughs> definitely do. Make it into a drink. Make it into a drinking game. Every time the bell rings, take a sip or something. No, every time they say "dude," because they say "dude" a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Nile, I'm assuming I'm, you're gonna. I'm gonna keep it. it. No, I'm not. I'm what? gonna definitely <laughs> bin it. Madman. Although no, gonna... it's, it's, it's Hellraiser two all over again. <laughs> <laughs> that was a work of art. <laughs> yeah. So it was the perfection, but there we go. <laughs> it's not as good as climax. Anyway, uh, carry on. <laughs> oh yeah, got got a bit of climax. Um, keep it up in it. Not the action. <laughs> That's your turn, Mark. What are you doing? That's no, my turn. I know. <laughs> no, there you go. Uh, bin it again. It's just I, I can't concentrate myself on story and the visuals. Visuals, I loved. I think the visuals in this was amazing. Um. The jump scares were brilliant, um, but the story didn't make sense. And as as much as the visuals almost saved it for me, I have to bin it. Yeah. So, Mark, let me ask you this: did you did you bin The Shining? I did. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us. <laughs> You'd have to watch the episode. <laughs> no, that right. In my defense. I said visually it was very good, but I, I kind of enjoyed the Simpsons parody a bit better. Anyway. Um, okay, okay. All right. <laughs> so Thanks, two out of three binnings? Yeah. Person, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's a good film in points. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, the, the Shining yeah. has one good scene in it. This is going to be really controversial. I've said it before, <laughs> but... The the scene when he's uh, writing the script in the big dining room and his wife comes in and uh, basically has a go in and then he tries to kill her. As you do. If yeah, you, that scene is amazing. <laughs> if you can't appreciate the scene where Scatman Crothers is in Florida on his bed looking at pictures <laughs> of beautiful black women with afros and if you can't appreciate that scene, man, I don't know. Scatman Crothers is the shit. I wish that dude was still alive because I would put him in anything I did. <laughs> That's the thing. The, the, the acting is really good in it. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to defend my bin. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, what's done is done, I'm afraid. We can't unbin. <laughs> did, did, did one of you not bin it? Did one of you keep it? Or did all three of you guys bin it? Uh, me and I kept it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah I think it was just Mark who binned it. Yeah. Don't you don't you lie. <laughs> <laughs> I kept Hellraiser. Defend me. <laughs> Oh, did we in actually all? We, we didn't all bin the Shining, surely. No, I'm pretty sure we. Uh, I thought me and you kept it, didn't we? I definitely binned it, Marcus. I'm not even. It was playing. a long. I'm not even joking around <laughs> with that. It was a long time ago. I'm, sure, I'm assuming Marcus said keep. Well, we can't all love every movie. The book was much better. Yeah, I like the book. I think that's the why I was really so good. hurt by it because I know Stephen King really didn't like the film. Mm -hmm. Just felt hurt by it. I think. I love yeah. the music for The Shining. It's just so calming and smooth. smooth. So, guys, um, I know you've got to shoot off because you've got, got some important film-related bits to do. Um, so, I'll say to you now, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, is there anything you guys want to plug? Um, I don't know. Steve, you got anything? 
Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, we talked about the knocking already, so we're going to be directing that, and that'll be cool. And um, fingers crossed, our Polybius, you know, seer pilot gets picked up, and uh, yeah, that's kind of it for right now that we can talk about. I think. Cool. Yeah, thanks cool. for having us on. Yeah, for sure. No worries. Again, very thank, glad thank to you. have thanks you. For, uh, yeah, we I mean one quick again. Question. It's all right. We'll go Quickly. ahead, Marcus. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to ask this earlier. It's about summer of '84. I can't remember the girl's name, but the girl and Davy. Do they get together in the um, potential sequel that you two wanted to write? Mm, what do you think, Matt? No, I mean, oh, so for for us in in this one, they were she never really took it seriously. Like, to, you know, there was a scene that was in the script that got cut um, from the movie where it's sort of when Davy's at the bowling alley, he basically goes into the bathroom, and then as he's coming out. Um, Nikki kind of corners him and it's just like, yeah, you know, I know you spy on me, you little perv. Like, you know, and it's, it, it ends up being like this really terrifying moment for him. And then she's like, what's your, what's your problem? Why are you doing that? Like, and, and he basically, he basically like can barely say it, but he gets out the words because I think you're kind of perfect or some version of that. And she softens. So that sort of sets the trajectory of their relationship where you realize they know each other. She used to babysit him and she knows that he spies on her occasionally and she really doesn't like it. Um, but then when he says that, she kind of softens and then she realizes that like this is like, you know, he like a- adores her and like looks up to her. So while she's going through this really traumatic thing in her personal life where her parents are getting divorced and her the sort of found the bedrock of her of her, her life is kind of um, crumbling she's got this kid next door who like she can't do anything wrong in in his eyes and i think she really is she needs that kind of uh, a feeling is where we were coming from so she never really took it seriously romantically she was just kind of like she liked the attention that she wasn't getting um from her family and from from the rest of her life and and then it kind of grows into a friendship when she realizes that like he really cares and so for us that was that relationship because I know a lot of people were like, oh, what, dude? Like, she would never hook up with him. And we were like, well, that's not really what we were going for. Um, and I think if that other scene had been in the movie, it would have been a little bit more clear. But we ended up having to cut it for, for runtime. But um, in a sequel, I don't know, man. I'd be open to it. I think that there's a world where, like, they're years later, uh, you know, that, that could be the case. Like, if that were the case, though, then it would have to be their kid that is the one that Mackie's coming after. So they already got together at some point And... You know, I think that'd probably be like a fan favorite choice. I'd be open to it. What, you, what about you, Steve? Yeah, everything you said. I think I think it would be interesting to explore that angle. Like, just kind of after everything they went through together, and you know, the breakdown of the neighborhood and stuff. Like now, the context is a little different. So, yeah, what does that look like years later? Like, that'd be interesting to to think about and toy with. Oh, I don't know how yeah. you guys feel about that, but I really want this to happen now. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get like a just a crowdfunding page? Yeah, let's do it. We'll get a graphic novel done. I definitely want to see that. That would be amazing. But cool. I'll uh, I'll wrap this up. I know you guys are shooting off. I know I'm looking at time and I'm panicking for you. Um, Again, thank you for joining us. Um, It's been really amazing having you on. Um, Shame, shame. The films weren't as good as we all wanted it to be, but (laughs) (laughs) bins all around. But yeah, again, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to the next film that you guys are going to be doing. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah. All right, cool. Take care. Great. So that was our guest for the week. That was uh, Matt Leslie and Stephen uh, Smith, who are the co-writers and one of them was the producer of Summer of '84. Lovely couple of chaps. It was lovely, wasn't it? It was a. Uh, it was in. Actually, we behaved ourselves for a change, which is actually. I didn't swear. 
Oh my god. Me and Marcus swore. Nah, I don't swear. Nah. I'm too innocent. Do you know what? I'm going to carry on. This this is the new me. <laughs> <laughs> the new give him a, give him a beer and it'll change. I've literally got some gin in my hand. Uh, literally. I was going to say, he'd be tingly all over otherwise. <laughs> in the corner room crying um <laughs> let's do the outro guys um it's meant to be an outro shit <laughs> as always you can catch me over on snakebite horror um over on twitter uh, snakebite vault over on letterboxd and snakebite horror over on instagram um you can also catch up with all the update up to date reviews and traders over on Snake Bite Horror, the code UK, Franchise Players Podcast over on our feed as well. Um, we've got a really cool episode coming up with Biggie Dark from the Don't Point Your Horror at Me podcast. We'll be jump straight into our new series of Child's Play because we couldn't be bothered to do the reboot of The Omen. Um, and as always, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, I have been joined, as always, by Narbitlock. That's me. Bye. And Marcus Wallace. Toodle-oodle.